Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Kat's making lunch today, and I holler in from the other room, I love you, and the cat goes, I love you too, and I holler back, yeah, but I love you more than, than you love me. And she threw her spatula at me. And then I screamed, that's a stupid fucking thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) We're even competitive when it comes to (laughs) amount of love we have for each other. Well, I mean, it's ridiculous to to think that you would love i mean that's just crazy talk no no i win i win in this you whole... mean you win because i love you more well yes you, in that way i, I do win that that you yeah. do love me all right but, but let's not be gross about it but i understand because the quality of your love is so much better than the quality of mine so oh, so you think that so i have to give you difference. more i have to give you more love because okay. it's not grilled cheese sandwiches. Because I, my love is diluted. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. And slightly charred. <laughs> hey, freaks. Thanks for joining us again on this little podcast that we do that we often call the Box of Oddities because, well, that's its name. You're so weird. I'm feeling weird today. Um, but uh, that's good because you go first and I'll calm down. Oh, okay. Go okay. ahead. Get your shit together. I love you more. <laughs> On September 12, 1940, 18-year-old Marcel Ravidat was walking with their pup in France when their dog, Robot, which is a great name. The best name for a dog. <laughs> I know. Uh, dog fell down a hole. Uh, mm. They called for the dog and they heard an echo. Um, so Marcel ran back and got some friends and they returned to the hole and they thought maybe that they'd found some secret tunnel there was a legend that nearby villagers claimed uh, that there was a secret passage to a nearby manor uh, that held a long lost treasure this sounds like a lovecraft short story yeah i was thinking goonies well, but, okay, sure. <laughs> but they did not find a long lost treasure. They didn't find the rich stuff. They didn't. 
They crawled in to rescue the dog, and they discovered a cave with hundreds of prehistoric animals painted across its walls and ceilings. So Marcel had an oil lamp, and he and Robot, you know, scurried to get out of the caves as quickly as they could and share the news with their friends. Like, look at what we found. They said that they were blown away by the, quote, cavalcade of larger-than-life animals, which appeared to dance along the walls. This is according to Collector.com. The friends kept the discovery a secret for quite some time, and, like, little baby entrepreneurs charged other children from the town (laughs) an admission to come and see the caves. See, the best I could do was a lemonade stand. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you did good. <clears throat> yeah. You did good. Yeah. And then I got a job in radio and took a pay cut. <laughs> well, eventually they convinced a local historian that they'd found these paintings in this cave. And he advised them to uh, keep other people from going to the cave because they didn't want any vandalism to happen mm-hmm. or any sort of mm-hmm. damage to happen to the artwork. How long did they keep it to themselves? Does I don't know. I- I'm it wondering. just says for a time. Okay. Um, but the boys took this advice very seriously. And one of the boys, at the age of just 14, persuaded his parents to allow him to set up camp by the entrance and 24-7 guarded the entrance to this cave so that no little ruffians would get in and and do any damage. Did they charge for that service? Uh, (laughs) No. This historian uh, determined that the artwork was so well preserved because the cave was sealed up tight. It was like a cork in a champagne bottle. And so they weren't affected by rapid temperature changes or uh, moisture. There were no stalactites or stalagmites. It was a dry cave. And this local historian, Briul, on September 21st of 1940, uh, went into the caves. He made many sketches of the caves. And some of these sketches are actually used now to reference the paintings within because the paintings within have since been damaged. So these are essential to the history of this cave. Um, He was accompanied by a curator of a prehistory museum and uh, a couple of other scientists and, and a doctor Uh, to examine what was going on in here. So this cave complex was open to the public in July 1948, and initial archaeological investigations began focusing on the different parts of the cave system. It actually became a really popular tourist site after World War II. So this cave contains nearly 6,000 figures, which can be grouped into three main categories, animals, human figures, and abstract signs. The paintings contain no images of surrounding landscape or vegetation, and most of the major images were painted onto the walls using red, yellow, and black colors using mineral pigments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that really kind of made this cave system and its art stand out was the sheer number of pieces and the scale of the artworks that were contained. One of the bulls painted on the wall is thought to be the largest scale image ever found in prehistoric cave art. Along with, you know, the other painted elements, there were 1,500 carvings and engravings etched into the limestone walls. Some of the animals depicted on the cave walls included oxen and horses, a now extinct long-horned cattle, 
And there's also a painting in there referred to as the crossed bison. And that's in the chamber of which they called the nave. It's often submitted as an example of the skill of these prehistoric artists. Mm. You know, so often it's thought like, okay, well, just any old person went in there with some rusty paint and, <laughs> you know, with a thumb just was like, arm dear. Yeah. Um, but that's that's not the case. The crossed hind leg creates the illusion that one leg is closer to the viewer than the other. And that visual depth in the scene demonstrates a very uh, primitive form of perspective so that we understand like how this animal's moving. I think I saw a documentary. Uh, David Attenborough may have done something on this. Very likely. Now, these are about, if if I'm thinking of the same thing, they're, they're about 15,000 years old. About 17,000. 17,000 yeah. years old. Initially thought to be about 20,000, but they, they they figure probably around 17 now. And um, the, the artwork was very strategically placed in certain spots in the cave where the... Um, the shape of the wall would add to the visual of this animal. Yeah, yeah. And I think, if memory serves me, they said that not only the shape of the wall adds depth and movement to the paintings, but they found spots where fires had been built. And the theory was that the way the flames were positioned. Yes, exactly. Is that result? It makes it made it look like it was moving. Yeah. So it was like a prehistoric big screen. Something like that, yeah. The fire definitely added to the, like the flickering light would have, especially with these uh, amazing cross-legged perspective mm, mm. bison, given the illusion of movement. And That's incredible. Um, even something as simple as, okay, well, I want to make a bison here. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to look around on the wall and find the spot where maybe it would make the most sense for its eye to be because it juts out a little bit. Yeah, and they would yeah. build around these very specific portions of rock and the shape of the rock to to make these things make the most sense and be the most effective. I wonder, if this, is, I wonder if this is like one guy's house, you know. <laughs> And he came up with this idea and he, he painted this and then he lit a fire and he invited all of his friends. Let's go over to Mogog's house tonight <laughs> because he's got that big screen. And then after a while, it was like, I don't want to go over there. I've seen that. And so he had to paint something else. Mm -hmm. And that's how he filled the cave up sure, over it was, time. It was probably Mogog's. Mogog's cinematic. Cave um, big screen. Right. That's what I'm thinking. And then eventually he was just like, oh, fuck it. And he put a neon out front that just said nudes. Right. Yeah. You know? Well, you have to adapt to the uh, the climate, <laughs> the economic climate. So the, the areas of the caves they call the Hall of the Bulls, as I mentioned, the nave, the passageway, the shaft, and the uh, chamber of felines, as well as the apse. The Hall of Bulls presents the most spectacular views of what's going on. It really is the most uh, comprehensive spot. Its uh, walls weren't suitable for engraving, so it's got incredible, an incredible number of paintings. Some are up to five meters long, uh, 16 feet-ish. Hmm. Amazing. So yeah, the uh, cave, because of the people coming in and out, and because of the moisture that was coming into the cave now, especially with people's hot, stupid breath, <laughs> it was uh, creating a real problem. And they, they sealed off 
the cave to the public. It was creating a real problem with carbon dioxide and the humidity. It was damaging the paintings. As I said, some of the uh, sketches done initially are the best records that we have of what those paintings looked like before they were, you know, breathed on, breathed on. But now the French government has spent $64 million uh, creating a near perfect replica to recreate this original cave. So when I tell you that it is a near-perfect replica, I cannot, like, like... Really? Really? It's next to the actual cave. You begin outside, and you walk slowly down toward the cave entrance. They've got sounds uh, piped in through speakers, so you're hearing the forest and what it would have sounded like when you were going into the cave oh, that's the, cool. for the first time. Once inside, the temperature is cool and constant, just like if you were in the real cave. And uh, there, it's not lit, so your eyes have to adjust to the darkness, just like your eyes would have in the original cave. Suddenly, there's animals everywhere. And the complex is the third attempt to recreate the cave. It's by far the, the most ambitious attempt. It is precise down to three millimeters. Wow. Thanks to 3D digital scanning of the actual cave. Every nook, every cranny... They used polystyrene and resin and fiberglass techniques to mm. create uh, all the, the shape of the rocks within the cave, not just where the art is, but throughout. Francis Ringenbach led the team of artists who recreated this cave and then copied the paintings onto them. It was about, it was over 30 artists and he called the job colossal. It took three years and they reproduced this art like high def down to the pixel. Oh my God. So you're seeing exactly, exactly what it what, but it was still hand done. So some of these artists are in there recreating the brush strokes or, you know, making the same movements that, that those people 17,000 years ago would have been doing. Immediately, my mind goes to what was going through the modern day artist's mind mm. while they're painting this, that they are literally walking in the footsteps of their ancestors yeah. from 17,000 years prior. It's It's got to be a, a bit overwhelming. It's got to catch you off guard every once in a while. I mean, it's like I said, it took three years. So for three years, they're going in and they're doing this. So at some point, it's probably like, okay, this is my job. Mm -hmm, I'm going mm -hmm. in and I'm doing the same thing day after day. But it must every once in a while just kind of like catch you like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is history like for real. It's prehistory. <laughs> there are uh, lots of mysteries surrounding the cave paintings. One of those mysteries is they don't know exactly how long they took to paint. Um, they, they're pretty sure it didn't just belong to one dude with a big screen. Magog. Magog. Yeah. I, I had forgotten his name already. I'm such mm. a dick. But uh, it could have taken anywhere from a few hundred years to a few thousand years. Mm. But there was a code and a certain style that they all followed. So they know that it was done by a small group and over the course of a specific period of time. So it was less like a guy's house. <clears throat> And more like a Stone Age uh, cineplex. Something, something like that, yes. Let's take the kids and go to the bison room this weekend. <laughs> uh, Dad, I've seen that. Magog's work was so much better in the early years. 
I got most of this information from NPR, of course, from Wikipedia, and from thecollector.com. The Lascaux Cave System was introduced into the UNESCO World Heritage Sites in 1979. And I am, I mean, I know I say this like a thousand times a day, but we have to go <laughs> We have there. to go. Yeah, we have sure. to go. <laughs> we better get busy because I, I, and I think probably because of the quarantine this last year, um, it's made us more anxious mm. to go, but it certainly made our list longer. For sure. <laughs> Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And I do remember seeing some some uh, film. I, I think it actually was the real cave. I recall the, and I think it was David Attenborough. I, I could be wrong. but that I re- seems right. I recall the person who was uh, directing and, and hosting this particular uh, documentary saying that they got special permission to go inside. Oh, wow. And they had um, walkways set up so that you're not actually touching the real ground when you go in. I mean, it's it, they, they've taken great care to protect these uh, these caves and, um, and paintings. Well, as we have learned, uh, walkways don't always protect things because butterflies can fly up on top of a walkway yeah. uh-huh. and then you can smash them right. and then right. and then you have to learn Russian. Thank you, Ray Bradbury. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. A magician named David Roller sued the illusionist David Copperfield for patent infringement. Mr. Roller alleged that he'd patented his godly powers and that Mr. Copperfield had used them without permission. In reality, Mr. Roller had neither applied for nor obtained a patent on his divine powers. When Mr. Copperfield filed a motion to dismiss the suit, contending that no patent existed, Mr. Roller filed an amended complaint. This time, he alleged that Mr. Copperfield and several other individuals had conspired to murder him. The court noted that the plaintiff hadn't cited any facts to support his claim and that he had a long history of filing frivolous suits, including previous claims against Mr. Copperfield. The court dismissed Mr. Roller's suit and barred him from filing any similar claims in the future. We're coming up on our 300th episode, and we don't have a thing to wear to the 300th episode party. This is The Box of Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? 
<sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash boxofoddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Kelsey sent us an email to curator at theboxofoddities.com. Hello there. First of all, I can't say enough about how much I love the podcast. The joy and the entertainment it brings me is endless. Second of all, I got a pretty good laugh today at work. I teach fifth grade in Oregon, and we're currently teaching online only. This morning during math, I had students working on a problem of their own. After a given amount of time, I called back their attention and I asked them to share. One of my sweet and gentle students raised their hand, a Zoom function, and when called on, rather than answer the question, he asked, Why do you say that? Why do you always say what you got for me? It's kind of weird. 
<laughs> I cracked up, told them it's from a podcast I listen to, and everyone that listens to the podcast are freaks. You know how there are things you do that you aren't fully aware of doing? I guess for most of the year, I just asked them to share their answers by singing JG's song. I'm a 27-year-old female, so it's a poor attempt that apparently worries my students just a tad. Anyway, thanks for the laughs, flying the freak flag everywhere I go, even at work. Kelsey. Thank you, Kelsey. <laughs> Yeah, I do things I don't even realize it. Like I, I talk to myself. <laughs> One day I was I was leaving and I'm I'm closing the door and I'm going. I'm gonna get my cell phone. Uh, let me see. Do I have my keys? And I turn around. The UPS guy's right behind me. <laughs> he looked at me like I had three heads. I talk to myself constantly, uh, but I do it under the guise of talking to the dogs. So I think that's fine. Yeah, and then when you're talking to me, I'm assuming you're talking to the dogs, and then you get mad at me for ignoring you. Well, I mean, don't ignore me. I don't. I love you more than I you love me. I just wish that you loved me as much as I love you. That's all. <laughs> all right. Here we go. I will say real quick before you get started, mm -hmm. I saw you reading and compiling earlier today, and you had like the goofiest grin on your face. <laughs> so I'm, I feel like I'm very excited okay. to hear what you have to say. Well, don't get your hopes up too high. Um, let me ask you this to begin with. Have you ever heard of syllable and brains? I, I know of those two things. Right. A syllable is a part of right. the sound of right. a word. Sure. No, but I'm talking about the hip-hop duo. No, no. Syllable and brains. No, were they like crisscross? Kind Did they make you jump jump? They didn't. Uh, they weren't all crossed out. They were only partially crossed out because of a uh, funding shortage. Sure, because they missed the bus. Yeah. Syllable. Syllable and brains. Syllable and brains. <laughs> okay. And it was also all, almost pronounced silly bill. It was a combination of syllable and silly bill. So it was so silly bill. Silly bill. Anyway, and brains with an N apostrophe. Sure. Hip hop duo consisting of Gavin Bain and Billy Boyd. They're from a small town in California. They got kicked out of school. They ran out of money in the UK. They had gone to the UK to try to make it big as rappers. And they ran out of money when they were there. They were really on the edge of failure. They were looking at trying to find part-time jobs in order to make enough money to mm -hmm. get back to the United States. But all of a sudden, Jonathan Shallot discovered them at one of their performances. Now, he's managed some pretty big names like Sting and Cher and Elton John. He was able to take these two. Syllable and brains. I'm sorry. When you said Sting and Cher and Elton John, I pictured like knockoff versions of all of them <laughs> where it's like Sting and where it's like S-Z-T-N-G yeah. yeah. and Cher and it's like S-H-A-R-E. <laughs> Elton John. <laughs> right? No, real guys. Um, he was able to land these two a $350,000 record deal with wow. Sony Music UK. Uh, the deal was for two singles in an album. The pair worked on recording material. They continued to perform live. They started touring with Eminem, and they even opened for D12. What? They performed to huge sellout concerts in the UK. They appeared on MTV, interviews, concerts, recording studios, live tours, parties, groupies. Their star was on the rise. This was before their, their music had even been released. They were being promoted by the record company. Wow. They were out on tour. They were living the fast life pretty quickly, going from nobodies to touring with D12 and Eminem. Wow. Very quickly, though, the pressure became too much. They had a violent fight 
as things began to speed up in their life, Boyd wanted to leave the group and marry his girlfriend right before their first single was to come out. Oh, no. Bane didn't want to jeopardize the group. The next day... Wait, did you say Bane or Brain? Well, Bane is his real name, but oh, Brain's... Brain yeah. Bane? <clears throat> brain Bane. Okay. Bane didn't want to jeopardize the group, but the next day, Boyd was gone, silly Bill, um, leaving just one half of Syllable and Brains right before their first single was to about to be released. My goodness. That must have been disappointing for Brain. Does Brain need Silly Bill or can he just get like some other person to get on stage <laughs> with him and pretend to be Silly Bill? Well, it, it got worse. Sony's merger and subsequent job losses left them without supporters in the record company. And their first single that was planned to be released was delayed for another six months. The label started focusing on other acts and pretty much forgot about these guys. And yeah. Even though the music deal fell apart, Brains continued to live as Brains McLeod for the next two years. He, he tried to perform on his own. Um, he quickly developed a problem with alcohol and drug abuse. And pretty soon, it didn't take long, he overdosed. Oh. But he did not die. He said, I always said when I was younger, if I hadn't made it with music by the time I was 25, then I'd kill myself. And that date really crept up on me. Brains lived through his near-death experience, but at this point, he had hit pretty much rock bottom, and very quickly, they'd gone from nothing to limousines and, and parties and sold-out concerts to odd jobs in just a very short period of time. Finally, Bane came out with the truth. Everything was a lie. It turns out these guys weren't even from a small California town. Nothing that they told people about themselves was true. In fact... Wait, was his name even Brains? <laughs> no, it was Bane. Um, in fact, they were not even from the U.S. They had never even been to the United States. Oh, my goodness. Here's their story. In the early 2000s, Bane and Boyd were working together in Scotland. They were Scottish. They they had gone to an uh, like a um, Britain's Got Talent kind of thing. Okay, I don't know if it was exactly that show, but it was that kind of thing where they had to go and audition. Right. And one of the judges, because of their Scottish accent, they were dismissed by one of the judges as the rapping proclaimers. No, because of their accents more than anything. So they decided to reinvent themselves. They took on American identities. They pretended to be from San Jacinto, California. They created their personas of Silly Bill and. And brains, and under their new identity, they started to book these clubs. They gained attention in London. They moved to the city, to London. They secured live work. They be, they got management. They got that label deal with Sony Music UK. The pair worked on recording the material while they continued to por, uh, perform live. They based their personas on <laughs> on their favorite comedians, uh, Jim Carrey who is actually Canadian, but uh, they that was one of them, and Chris Tucker. And they rapped with American accents. They perfected their American accents. Wow. And that made all the difference. Uh, Bain told Weekend, All Things Considered host Guy Raz, quote, these lyrics were just the same when we did them in American accents. There was nothing different. And all of a sudden, people were saying, oh, wow, they're just like Eminem. But in, with a Scottish accent, they were like, no, nah, these guys don't have any talent. So they reinvented themselves. They had not been stranded in the UK. Mm -hmm. That's where they were. They just made it up that they came over from California and got stranded. 
While they were recording their album, they dropped small clues into their true identities in lyrics uh, like losers, which subtly mocked the people that, uh, that bought their whole story. He said, we kind of liked to put little hints about what we were actually doing because we knew as soon as the record came out, we were going to come clean and that everything would make sense. It was a very naive plan. This is according to an article that I found in NPR. But they got swept up in things. Things started happening much faster than uh, they than they expected. And one lie that they had told that they were friends with Eminem and, and D12 really became an issue when their manager came and said, hey, we booked you on a tour with Eminem and D12. Oh. <laughs> and they were like, what are we going to do? We can't We can't hide from them the whole time. So they pulled a Frank Abigail Jr., like from Catch Me If You If You Can. Abagnale. Abagnale, yeah, Jr., from the movie Catch Me If You Can. They just saw, thought they'd go all in. They saw the rappers there, and they just went out, and they started high-fiving him and, and cuddling with him like they'd known him all along, and it, they, everybody just went along with it. Well, yeah, I mean, you're so afraid to appear rude by not remembering someone that yeah. uh, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, hey, remember that time? Oh, yeah, that was yep. a good time. Yep, oh. and so they kind of conned their way into it. Wow. There were lots of other close calls, including, uh, well, in, in uh, Bain, Bain, he wrote a book called California Scheming. Um, <laughs> when the group appeared on MTV's TRL, fans and friends from the UK and from Scotland recognized them and started flooding the message boards with, uh, hey, these guys aren't who they say they are. They're really Scottish. But Bain says, I just got carried away. There was so much money involved. The plan was to come out when the record happened. But then we started worrying that we were going to be sued by the record company. So the stress of the lies that Bain and Boyd had uh, created caused so much friction. They were at each other's throats all the time. They stopped talking to each other. They stopped talking to friends and family. Bain said, we were, in, we were so in love with these characters. We couldn't get out of the character. It was complete insanity. And that's when the pressure became too much. They had that violent fight. And Boyd went back to Scotland, married his girlfriend. Bain continued to stay in character, <laughs> Brains McLeod, for two years, just living his life. Wow. He would go to the door to tell the landlord he didn't have the rent money as Brains McLeod in his American accent. <laughs> he got a job as an escort agent for a little while. He conned his way into a, an American uh, shoe company. He, he was a shoe salesman for a while using his American accent. He said, for me, I still thought this American character I was playing, it was more beneficial to be him. And then he came out with the truth, finally, in 2007. It was uh, in a debut performance with his new band, Hopeless Heroic. He said it was the first time he'd been on stage sober in his life. Oh, wow. The reaction was mixed, but he said that um, he felt inspired to tell his real story. Quote, that was the aim of it. That was the message, to get people off their asses and doing what they want to do and to never give up. The uh, group got back together in 2013 and they released a CD called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Did they go, I mean, they called themselves Skrilly and Blaine? <laughs> they, they called themselves Syllable and in, in, in Brains, yes. Wow. The story eventually became an, a 2013 documentary called The Great Hip Hop Hoax. And uh, my material for this story came from NPR. It came from Wikipedia, and I, I got some of it from that uh, 2013 documentary, The Great Hip Hop Hoax, which you can find online. Syllable and Brains, the hip hop greats that almost were. That is delightful. <laughs> 
I don't know. I, I came across it and we had just watched Catch Me If You Can. Which, by the way, I I don't know. I thought maybe I had seen that when it first came out. But I, while we we're watching it, I was like, I don't think I've ever seen this. Really, really? It was so enjoyable. It was years. It had been years since I had seen it. But I love a good con man story. We're on a real Tom Hanks kick yeah, right That's true. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> that's the way it is. In fact, there was an article on, I think it was like Weird History or something the other day about Tom Hanks. And his many roles. And I had commented how we love Tom Hanks. And someone replied to my comment with, keep flying that freak flag. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I okay. was like, oh, oh, oh. oh, you know. Mm-hmm. You know. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, don't forget this Sunday. It's our Sunday phone call with the Freak Fam. Uh, for those of you who have our home phone number. We look forward to talking with you. If you'd like to get our home phone number, it's available to our patrons on Patreon, uh, specifically the inner circle of freaks, which is the most holy, the most sacred, Mm. the most hallowed ground within the order. I was just looking at the calendar on the wall, trying to figure out, like, what was the date that we decided upon? Uh, But I haven't updated that in four months. Yeah. So we bought that and we were really good about using that uh, wall calendar. For about two months dur- yeah. during our last tour. Yeah. And since then, it's just kind of sat there. Yeah. Anyway, um, we look forward to speaking with you, and you still have time to support the Box of Oddities. Of course, you can do it anytime, but if you do it now and you join the Inner Circle, then uh, you get that phone number, and you can give us a call, and we'd love to hear from you. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known. The box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.